Let's pray together. Our Lord, we are grateful for Jesus Christ, for the salvation that we have in him. We're grateful, Lord, that it's because of him that we don't have to worry about our sin anymore, that all of it has been taken from us from the east as, as far as the east is from the west. We're grateful, Lord, for the fact that because there is no more condemnation, because there is no more sin that we have to deal with, that we are adopted into your family and we are considered by you as your children. What a privilege that is for us, and we pray that, Lord, we would not forget it. Thank you for this time that we get to uh, worship you through singing, and we pray that you be with us as we now worship you through the preaching of your word. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning again to everyone, and I hope you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving, and uh, that if you were not able to get away to see family, that you were blessed by time with the church family and and some friends over the last few weeks. Uh, This morning, we've been providentially brought to our text by our Lord to think about our call as believers to be at peace and to seek each other's good. And the only reason why I say we've been providentially brought to this text is because when I was filling out the church preaching calendar on my slots, I wasn't anticipating that this was going to be it, but here we are, Thanksgiving and a message on being at peace with one another. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, uh, verses 12 to 15. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 to 15. If you do need Bibles, we have Bibles in the back. Uh, or you can uh, go and uh, look at your Bibles on your phones. Okay, Verse 12 of 1 Thessalonians 5, the Apostle Paul writes this, But we ask of you, brothers, that you know those who labor among you, and lead you in the Lord, and admonish you, and that you regard them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, Be patient with everyone. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would be glorified and honored as we uh, approach your word uh, in worship this this morning. We pray that you would give me clarity of mind and uh, of thought as I try to explain the truths that are found in your word. And we pray that you give us all uh, ears to hear, hearts to understand, the truths that are found in your word this morning. Thank you, Lord, for all that you provided. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, many of us enjoy what has long been called the holiday season. That is Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's all wrapped into one, right? And why do we call it the holidays? Well, you know, it's kind of because we're lazy and we don't we, you know, instead of saying like, oh, happy Thanksgiving and Merry Christmas, we like to just bundle it all in one so we cover all of our bases all at once. Right? And so many of us enjoy the holidays, we enjoy the, the holiday season, but there are still some who approach this season with a sense of dread and perhaps even a sense of doom. Right? Many a holiday movie centers on someone's contentious return to their hometown or right, to visit with their family or even... <sighs> a visit to the dreaded in-laws, right? where, the, where there's always this stereotypical tension and drama. Now, even if you don't know this kind of family tension and drama personally, we are always reminded by those ever-present experts 
That the key to having a nice and peaceful time at our family gatherings is to avoid the subjects of religion and politics. Why do we need that kind of instruction year after year when the season itself is supposed to be characterized by love, peace, joy, and goodwill toward all men? Well, the answer, of course, is due in part to the fact that we are all born with a sin nature, but another factor could potentially be that all of our competing desires are at play at the same time. I have desires, you have desires, your other family members have desires. Right? We all have desires, we all have expectations, and they're all coming crashing down on one meal with the family. Some of us, we just want family time. Some of us want our relatives to stop prying and prodding in our lives, asking you, hey, so when are you going to get a, a, a significant other? When are you going to start dating? When are you going to get married? When are you going to have kids? Or if you're beyond those life stages, when are you going to retire? When are you going to have grandkids? Right? All those you know, extra prods and pushes, and just like, just leave me alone, okay? Can you mind your own business? Like, just leave me alone. Others of us, we just want to get all these extra holiday obligations just out of the way because I got stuff to do. There are so many piles of projects on my desk that I have to attend to. There are so many deadlines that I have to take care of. I wish that these holiday things would just come and go so I can get back to my life. Now, I can go on and on, but we don't have time for that. All that to say, though, there are a lot of desires, there are a lot of expectations at play that can lead to tension within our families. And if these competing desires and expectations can affect our families, can they not also affect the church when we gather? We all want the church to succeed. We all want to see a culture of discipleship and evangelism grow here in our church. But how we can go about these things can differ. Each church does things a little uh, differently. And as a result, we may all have these different desires and expectations um, for ourselves and for the church family and how we accomplish these goals together. But if we're all pulling in different directions, we can have some problems. And these problems that can arise from good desires can, if left unchecked, cause irreparable damage to the church. Now, most people don't actively try to damage the church or leave the church in a state where we are not at peace with one another, but it is inevitable. Whenever you have a lot of sinners gathering together, trying to do something together, right? it is inevitable for sin to rear its ugly head and to cause some trouble, to cause some issues. So in our text this morning, we're going to look at Paul's closing instructions to the Thessalonians, and we're going to observe two essential ingredients that encourages peace within the church family. Two essential ingredients that encourage peace within the church family. And these ingredients are honor elders and two, patience with all. And as we observe these points, we're actually also going to cover two one another's, be at peace with one another, and seek good for one another. Our first essential ingredient that encourages peace within the church family is honor elders. Now, before I uh, before we begin to look at our text this morning, let me provide a reminder for why we're here right, and why Paul wrote what he wrote. So Paul, he's writing to the Thessalonians. Remember, they're a model church. And at least in the previous 
two messages that we've covered, he had been writing to address concerns that they had regarding uh, those who had died before Christ's return. They were concerned that they missed out on Christ's return, and also concerns that they could potentially be experiencing the wrath of God because of the persecution they were experiencing. Right? And after he uh, instructed them and helped them understand that their loved ones didn't miss out and that they are not objects of God's wrath, he told the Thessalonians that it was their responsibility to comfort one another and to build each other up. And so as we approach verses 12, technically, uh, well, we're going to 15, but technically all the way through 22, we see instructions for how the church is uh, is to act amongst each other as we anticipate the day when Christ returns. Right? As so, so this is his instruction, and this is why we see this, this set of, um, the, these sets of commands and, and teaching uh, that focus on peacemaking and doing good towards one another. Okay? And so first we see Paul's request that they know their elders. And this is one way that we can be, you know, get our community ready for, uh, keep our community ready for the return of Christ, is know our elders. What does that mean? Well, verse 12, But we ask of you, brothers, that you know those who labor among you and lead you in the Lord and admonish you. When Paul writes, but we ask of you, you notice that that's not a command. right? That's a request. It's not forceful. Now, it's polite. It is a firm request, but it's not a command. And so Paul, he wants the Thessalonians to know the people in the church who labor among them, who lead them in the Lord, and who admonish them. Now, at first glance, it might seem as if Paul is describing three different groups of people. But the Greek grammar makes it clear that we're not talking about three different groups of people doing three different jobs. Rather, we're talking about one group of people who do all three of these things all at the same time. So as we look at the description of those who perform such tasks all at the same time, or all within the same umbrella of role, these people who labor, lead, and admonish are the elders that each church recognizes as God's leaders for them. Now, some of you might look at this text, and you're looking at it, and you're like, I don't know, Pastor Roger, I don't see elders here. I just see a list of descriptions. So how do I know that you're not just being crazy or power hungry and, or whatever, right? And, and that this actually does refer to elders? Why does it matter? Well, it matters because when we're thinking about who Paul is writing to and at what time he is writing to them, we have to see what he means in context, right? That's how we understand what the Word of God has to say and how we think about how we apply it to our lives, right? So there's no hidden, hidden agenda here. There's no, you know, uh, subtle prodding and telling you like, hey guys, you need to honor the elders a little bit more, right? It's, it's not that. But what, when, when Paul is writing, right, he's giving us a particular thought. He's trying to develop a particular uh, uh, mindset in God's people. And so as we look at the context, right, even as you think about the context of the early church, Right? The people in church leadership at that time, they're the elders. Right? When he tells Timothy and Titus to minister to the people in their churches, one of the tasks that he gives to them is to appoint elders. Right? To appoint elders. Those who are shepherds of God's flock. These men, the pastors and teachers that Paul tells us in Ephesians 4, 11 through 12, are, are the ones who have been gifted to the church by God for the equipping of the saints 
for the work of service and the building up of the body of Christ. These same men are the men in Hebrews 13, 17, whom we are reminded are tasked with being watchmen over our souls. And they are the ones who give an account of us before holy God. And that's kind of a scary thing to think about, isn't it? That the responsibility to give an account or to give a report, a progress report, if you will, to God about how the church is doing falls on the shoulder of these, shoulders of these men. And we have a church that's roughly around 300 people. We have about 10, well, we have for sure 10 elders in our church. Right? If you do the math, I can do this one. There's 30 roughly to each elder. Right? That's a lot. How many of you have tried to manage a classroom of 30? Right? Or even, even smaller yet, manage your own family of four, five, or six. Right? And to know how each person is doing. And to know the state of their soul. And to know where they're at before the Lord. It's a hard task that, that elders are called to do. And I'm not telling you this so that... Because uh, so, so that you can all have pity on the elders, be like, oh, poor elders, I'm so sorry for you. Right? No, that's not my point. My point is to show you, though, how hard this task is, how significant this task is, is so that you can recognize that your elders, they're not just people who somehow you know, grabbed power and decided to, to, uh, to lead the church, but these are men who chose, right? who chose, because of their love for God's people, to try and lead God's people more towards Christ. When you think about any of these passages in the scriptures that describe elders and what they do in the church, none of them necessitate that elders are the businessmen in the church or the most powerful people in the church. These men ought to be those who, do, who, who have a heart for God's people. They ought not to have an aspiration for power, but an aspiration for service. Right, you think about it, right? Christ, in his leadership of the church, he doesn't sit high in a tower on a throne making commands, demands, and telling everyone what to do. Right, when he was with his disciples, he was the one who put on the apron. He was the one who knelt on the ground and washed all of their stinky feet. He served. His leadership was service. If you think about what exemplary leadership ought to look like in the home, the husband is not given the responsibility and ability to sit back in the lazy boy, pull out the Doritos, and demand a Coke from his wife. I think that's how sometimes we think of it, right? But that's not what leadership looks like, right? Even leadership doesn't mean that you get to make all the decisions and that your wife has to submit to you in every single thing, right? But that you serve, that you look out for the interests of your wife, that you look out for her concerns, that you are, that you are mindful of her, that you, you understand the things that she's going through, the things that are burdens on her heart, and you try and lift her up and encourage her in those ways, right? That's what leadership is. It's loving service, right? 
Let's move this out beyond the elders. Let's take an application step away from the elders for a moment. For those of you who serve here at church, whether it's in children's, whether it's uh, in AV or ushering or any other ministry here at this church, events planning, the reason why you serve should be because you love God and you love God's people. And your love for God and love for God's people drives you to service. It should not be, well, there was a need and I wasn't doing nothing, so here I am, send me. I mean, it's okay if that's part of the reason why you're serving where you're serving. But hopefully what's driving you to continually serve in the body is not, well, there's a need, so I'm just going to fill it. Hopefully what should drive that desire to serve in the church is a love for God's people. Even when you're serving in children's, you're not just serving the kids. You're not just loving on the kids, although you are. But you're also loving on their parents. You're giving their parents an opportunity to have rest. You're giving their parents an opportunity to be fed the word. Right? So when we serve, we serve out of a heart of love. Right? This is the thing. It's not aspiration for power. It's not aspiration for clout or for influence. But it's out of love that we ought to serve. Okay, so that's application, bringing us back to the text now. Notice, going back to 1 Thessalonians 5.12, that the leadership that the elders have, it's borrowed authority from the Lord. It's borrowed authority. They work among God's people, which means we're not above you. We don't stand above you, and, and, um, and, and we're not any better than you. We're one with you. And also, whenever leaders exercise leadership, right, it is leadership that is limited by what the Lord gives us, right? We lead in the Lord. Some elders might be leaders in their field outside the church, right? And they have a lot of authority. They have a lot of clout. But once they cross those church doors, their authority and their clout is gone. It's gone. We are fellow saints with one another, right? Their authority becomes limited to uh, what the scriptures teach, okay? Any leader in the church your authority is limited to what the scriptures clearly teach. Now, when we talk about application, right, when we talk about counsel, that's not directly from the scriptures. Right, these are merely suggestions. They might come from a good place. They might come from a good heart. They might come from good biblical principles, but they're just suggestions. They do not have the weight the same weight as the clear commands of Scripture. And so for all of us, whenever we're teaching people from the Word of God, we have to learn how to separate between what the Word of God says and how we believe it ought to be applied in our lives. We have to separate that. If we don't separate that, we can be at danger, or in danger, sorry, of potentially adding more of our spin into the Word of God and making that have the way the Word of God versus the Word of God being the Word of God. Right? So we have to be careful of that. Now, when Paul asks the people to know their elders, right, he's not merely asking that they be able to list the elders of the church, right? simply knowing the names of our ten elders in our church, or the, even the fact that we have ten elders in our church, is not what Paul has in mind here. The word know 
that Paul uses here is that word that's typically associated with having an intimate or experiential knowledge of someone. However, in this particular context, it also carries this idea of having respect, having honor or appreciation towards those who are elders. Now you might be thinking, well, how do we demonstrate appreciation towards our elders? How do we demonstrate respect and honor towards them? Well, do you acknowledge them in the halls with kind greetings, but then in private you criticize them, you grumble and you complain about them, tell other people about how incompetent they are? Is that what respect is? Is that what honor is? No, it's not. Right? That's not heartfelt honor. It's kind of a, it's a sham. It's not true honor. What are the things that we can be thinking about in terms of like truly honoring our elders? Well, knowing the tasks that they have, the serious tasks that they have, the responsibility that they have to give a report to God for how you all are doing, do you pray for your elders? Do you ask God to help them in their tasks? To help them to continue to pursue Christ-likeness in their own lives? To help them in their marriages? To help them if they're fathers in their fatherhood. To help them in their ministry task. Do you pray for them? Are you conscious of praying for your elders? And pleading that the Lord would continue to help them grow in Christ likeness. So that they can in turn do the same for you. Do you seek out how you might be able to serve them? How you might be able to take off some of the burdens that they might have so that they can continue to check in on people rather than structures? Right? These are all just suggestions, small little samples of things that we can do to honor our elders. But Paul's request doesn't simply stop here at respecting the elders through being mindful of them and their labors. He also calls for us to hold elders in high regard. Verse 13. And that you regard them very highly in love because of their work. Paul calls on the church to regard or hold their, their elders in highest regard. And this might be a touchy subject for some of you, especially for those of you who have experienced heavy-handed leadership at your, some of your previous churches or, or even at work. But note well that Paul is not asking for the church to show blind loyalty and unquestioned submission to everything that the elders say. Okay, Paul knows that elders are not perfect. As an apostle, he knows that he is not perfect. And he knows that no one in church leadership deserves the same kind of loyalty that we show to God and to Christ. For this reason... He is not telling the church to submit to their leaders and do whatever their leaders say just because they're your leaders. However, he does say, he does ask that the church family respect and treat with honor the church leadership in love. Right? To have a loving disposition toward your elders. Why? It's because of their work. Because of their work. The idea that church leaders are regarded highly in love, do their work, is actually really important because it protects against any idea that the elders get to act with an iron fist in the church. They're not given license for that. They're not given permission for that. 
right? The love that you owe, the love that you ought to have towards the elders is not out of fear of, uh, out of, fear of retaliation or of discipline, but it's because you understand that they work on your behalf. Right? That respect is driven by love because we understand and recognize how hard the church elders work on behalf of the church on top of everything else that they are stewards of. Right? Many of the elders also have families that they are to shepherd. They also have business responsibilities that they have to attend to. And any time after that, right, any kind of service that they have after that is given to the Lord. Right, so especially for our lay elders, we ought to love them and respect them for the things that they do. Right, because their service to the Lord is on top of everything else that they do. Right, they're just not sitting at home, twiddling their thumbs, watching Disney Plus and Netflix, waiting for phone calls to happen. They're working hard, and they're studying the scriptures on top of everything else that they're doing. This love and respect is driven by gratitude, not status. Even if we might have differences and disagreements with the elders that God has appointed and called in the church, the work that they do as God's associate shepherds of the flock should cause us to have a loving disposition towards them, a loving attitude towards them. It's a respect and love for the office and work, not the person. Did you catch that? It's a respect and love for the office, not the person. I'm sure there are some of you out there who don't like me, who don't respect me. I grew up here, right? So I'm used to that. I'm used to people thinking that, oh, this is Roger, right? He, just, he grew up here. He's one of us. It's true, I am one of you, right? If you don't respect me as, as a pastor, that's okay. You don't have to. But at least respect the position. Right? At least respect the office. And I'm not saying this in a self-serving way, right? But to recognize that for the other people, the other elders in, in, in this church, Right? Even if you don't like them as people, even if they rub you the wrong way or they annoy you, right? at least respect the office. At least love on them. At least pray for them because of the things that they do. Right? Even if you don't always agree with their decisions or, or um, their personality doesn't jive with yours, right? at least respect the office. Right? It's it's recognizing that God is the one who called these men into ministry. God is the one who called these people uh, into service. And when they're done, he will take them out. Right? But until then, we are to love on them and respect them for the work that they do do. And as a result, God's people are called, this is the rest of verse 13, to live in peace with one another. Now, this might seem random, right? This might seem random. It's like, wait, so we're supposed to, to know our shepherds, and then all of a sudden it's just like, Hey, live in peace with one another. How is this connected to anything? Right, but when we look at the direct context, the people commanded to live in peace are who? Or whom? The brothers. Right, the brothers. But we ask of you, brothers. Right, they're the people who are being addressed. They are the addressees. The elders are the ones 
that the addressees are to direct their actions towards. So Paul's command is that the church body lives in peace with the elders and vice versa. Again, I know for those of you who have not had so uh, who have not had really like great relationships with uh, overly strong leadership, church leadership, that this command doesn't seem great. But it highlights an important principle. If we are unified in Christ, if we are one in him, if our relationship with one another is meant to demonstrate to the world how God has brought people with all sorts of differences together into one church body, we should not be marked. We should not be defined by fights and divisions. Sure, church elders are sinners too. We don't know everything. We don't always respond to every situation correctly or in the way that God wants us to. We still make mistakes. Right? You even saw in the pandemic, we were trying to make decisions based off of the knowledge that we, uh, the information that we had. But we didn't know everything. And unless you think this is just an apology for all the things that we've done in, uh, in, during COVID, right? it's, it's like nobody knew anything. Right? Everyone was scrambling to try and understand these things, and so we're just trying to together make the best decisions that we could. And so we don't know everything. We make mistakes, right? And when we make mistakes, we have to own it. Right? We all have to own it whenever we make mistakes. We're just striving the best that we can to please our Lord. And so both elders and congregation are responsible for striving to honor and obey God together together. We are responsible to be at peace with one another because our peace, despite differences and disagreements as to how things are done in the church, demonstrates an aspect of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Right? Peace is, a, is an aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. And as a church, whether you're on the leadership level or on the congregational level, our commitment, first and foremost, is not to ourselves. It's not to our expectations, our needs, or to our grand ideas of how church can be better for our sake or for the sake of the community around us. That is not where our first commitment is. Our commitment, first and foremost, is to God and to Christ. Our peace amongst ourselves, then, should be the shining example of that commitment. When we are at peace, we show people that God and Christ and God's word matter more to us than all the things that we're tempted to fight about, than all the things that we're tempted to disagree on, than all of the rivalries that we might have even within the church body or the tensions that we might have in the church body. Think about it this way. What does the, church, what does the world do when they have differences and disagreements? Right. We have open-door policies. We have boxes where we can leave our complaints. Right. We have opportunities for us to bring to light all of the, the deficiencies that we see and strive to make changes in the lanes that we've been given. So far, so good, right? Similar to the church, that's, that's all right. But when they feel that they are not heard, when the issues are not sufficiently addressed in their eyes, they pack up and leave. Sometimes leaving behind a fiery trail of criticism and, and whatnot, sometimes without a word. But what is that? Do you recognize that? 
What is that? What is, what is rage quitting, really? Right? It's the grown-up equivalent of, you ain't going to play with me, I don't take my ball, we go, I'm going to go home, and you're going to stay here by yourself. That's all it is. It's the grown-up equivalent of saying, I'm going to take my ball, and I'm going to go home. That's really what it is. Now, while that happens in the world, right, and we're like, okay, whatever, right, this is not how the church ought to function. Right? This is not how the church ought to be. Now, I'm not saying, okay, don't hear me say something contrary. I'm not saying that people should therefore never leave the churches that they're in. Right? There are certainly circumstances for that. There are certainly occasions where that is allowable. If, you know, we're not uh, in agreement on certain things, but that's not our focus this morning. Where the point is this. If we find ourselves in conflict with the elders of the church, Paul's command for us to live in peace with one another means that God has given responsibility for both the elders and the people in the church to pursue peace. Right? It is our together, right? our collective, God-given responsibility to be at peace with one another. Okay, the elders are not exempt from it. You all are not exempt from it. Every single one of us has a God-given responsibility to each other and mostly to God to be at peace with one another. Why? Again, it's because our peace together as a family is a picture of the gospel. Because our peace ought to cause other believers, other friends, other family members who are aware of our church's shortcomings and issues to marvel at the power of the gospel as sinners who have differences and disagreements gather together and put those differences and disagreements aside for the sake of unity, for the sake of the progress of the gospel, to show people that this gospel that we say we believe actually works and makes an impact in my life. Right? Because when they see the issues, when they hear the criticisms, they expect you to be just like the world. To, to basically say, well, you know, if that church don't work for you, there's plenty of other churches here in San Francisco. Why don't you go check out one of them? Right? You don't like how they're doing stuff here? Go ahead. Go check out this church. Go check out that church. Go check out these other churches. Right? That's what they expect. That's what's normal. But when we choose to stick it out, when we choose to try and come together for the glory of God to resolve differences, or to even lay aside expectations, to lay aside rights, all for the purpose of the gospel, oh, what an amazing picture of dying to self to live not for us, but for the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, do you live for yourselves or do you live for God's glory? Is church about you or is it about God? What is it? Sure, you can be entitled to your opinions and criticisms of how church does things. Some of those things can be valid. Some of those things can be true. But if we were all to strive to have a God-honoring attitude and perspective on how we are to live together in peace with one another... Right? That's everything. That's the difference. That's the thing that makes us stand out compared to the rest of the world. Now, are you willing to humbly put these differences aside and still strive to love leaders and really love them? 
Not love them in word, but not in deed. Are you willing to do all those things to show that the cross of Christ overcomes those differences and disagreements? Are we willing to demonstrate through our submission to the clear commands of Scripture to show that God's Word works? And it can make an impact. And it can make a difference. Are we willing to humble ourselves to show that this word that we study, this word that we uphold, actually means something? That it actually does something? That's what we ought to strive for. That's what we ought to aim towards. Now, if you're tempted to think, man, all this sounds rough. I can't wait to be an elder so that none of these things apply to me. And I can do what I want. Right? If that's what you're thinking, right, don't be like young Simba and be like, oh, I just can't wait to be king because I can do whatever I want. Right? He's a fool. Right? He learned real quick that he can't do whatever he wants right? just because he's king. Just because you're in a position of leadership doesn't mean that things are better. Because why? The scriptures cut both ways. A lot of Paul's instruction is to the congregation, but it's also a reminder to the elders too. It's a reminder to the elders, too, that we are not exempt from the word of God. Right? So elders, if you're tempted to think that you are exempt from this, you're not. Right? We are not. The scriptures cut both ways. We are responsible to pursue peace if we are aware of conflict. All of us as a church, our entire church, every single member, right? none of us stands above, none of us stands exempt. We are responsible before God to obey his commands. None of us are exempt. Now, even if we feel like we have cause... To not show respect and honor. Right? And not because I feel like it, right? Even if we feel like we feel like we have cause. Even if we feel like we have legitimate reasons for not living in peace with others because of what they've done to us, how they've treated, treated us, what they've said, said to us, or even how they said things to us, we still have a responsibility before God. You remember that, before God, to live in peace with one another. Now, the context of this text, if we're to apply it directly, is, of course, towards church leadership. But, take a step out in terms of application, this principle of peace, the peace that we ought to have, that ought to characterize the church, can be applied to our fellow believers as well. We can apply that to the way that we relate with one another, too. Now, remember that Paul, he gives these instructions to the Thessalonians, um, after addressing their concerns, and he's trying to help them prepare for life as they wait for the Lord's return. Right? And so part of how we uh, wait together as a church is to make sure that we're at peace. And the, the first ingredient to make sure that we can encourage some of that peace is to honor our elders. But there's a second ingredient, a second essential ingredient that ensures peace within, or that encourages peace within the church family, and that is being patient with all. Being patient with all. Verse 14. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Now, many of you will recognize these verses as one of the main texts that we go to in biblical counseling to describe our ministry to each other, and rightly so. Yes, we have a responsibility to honor the church leadership that God has given us, that God has graciously provided to the church. 
But the task to care for the people within the church, to make sure that we are all at peace, is not solely a leadership responsibility. It belongs to all of us. This responsibility for us to be at peace belongs to all of us. Now, it's true that Paul identifies the elders as those who labor among the people, those who lead the people in the Lord, and those who admonish uh, God's people. But there is a sense in which there is shared responsibility among the leaders and the family of God to take care of each other. Like verse 12, the initial request of, of the Thessalonians is not a command. He says, we urge you, brothers. This is an exhortation. It's a call. Um, it's, um, but it's not a command. Now, notice again, who's the target of his urging? It's the people. The people of the church. Okay, so everyone is responsible for this, uh, for the following actions. We are to first admonish the unruly. Admonish the unruly. The idea of admonishment is warning. It's correction of those who are in error. In particular, those who are unruly are those who are thought of as out of line from proper Christian conduct, out of line of proper, proper Christian behavior, um, or even just being undisciplined. For those of you who have the ESV, you'll notice that the word for unruly is tra- translated as idle. The, the, and, and the idea is essentially the same, because the idle or the busybodies who were addressed in 1 Thessalonians 4.11 were those who did not mind their own business or work with their hands as is proper. Instead, they were living out of step, out of line with conduct that was proper of believers. Right? Instead of doing their own work, doing their fair share, they were just being lazy and getting into each other's business. Right? And so as a result, they needed correction to get back in line, to get back in order with what Christians ought to do. Now, the elders are responsible for this. Right? That's part of our ministry. It's not just teaching. But the whole church is responsible for this as well. If we see any who are acting in a way that is displeasing to our Lord, our response should not be, oh, well, I'll let the elders handle this. They're more adept at this than I am. They can handle it better. Right? They have the words to say that are, that are stronger, that are more forceful. No, we all have a responsibility to this. We should all be willing to lovingly call out those who are behaving in a manner not pleasing to Christ so that they can hopefully see their error and change. We're reminded in Proverbs 27, 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. And now, this doesn't mean that you get to go around and uh, you know, viciously correct everybody. Every single little thing that you see that is wrong, you just get to smack them upside the head and say, you're not supposed to do that. God said so. Right? No, we don't do that. Okay, that's not what we mean by faithful are the wounds of a friend. But what we mean, though, is that as a friend, if you truly love your friends and you see sinful character in their lives, you see sinful thoughts, you see sinful attitudes, that you ought to love them enough to say, hey, this is what I'm noticing in your life. Do you think that's what we ought to be doing? What do you think about how, you know, how do you think your, your responses to these trials please the Lord? What do you think, you know, if God were to see you right now, would he be pleased with you? Yeah, I mean, yeah, is that, is that weighty? Yes. Right, does that feel good? Not all the time. Right? In fact, most of the time or no, the majority of the time, no, right? If someone were to say, like, what do you think God thinks of your, your attitude right now? He's like, Phew. 
You don't like it, right? I mean, that's just how it would be, right? Because like, we know, like, the moment someone asks that question, it's like, okay, you got a point there, right? But the idea is the same. The idea is the same. Is that we ought to be willing to go out to our brothers when we see them in error, or our sisters when we see them in error, and to challenge them, and to get them to think, how can I please God? Because right? it's not about me. It's about him. Right? So how can I please God in my life? In love, we ought to strive to help each other see our hidden faults within us so that we can strive towards Christ-likeness. That's the goal. That's the whole purpose that we meet as a church. That's why you don't live the Christian life alone. Because if we all live the Christian life alone, then none of us would be wrong in our own eyes, right? If we don't have anyone to tell us that we're in sin or to check us or to tell us like, hey, maybe you ought to rethink the way that you're approaching that, right? We're all going to be right in our own eyes. And so we need help from God's word and also from God's people to discover our hidden faults. And that's what we learned in our psalm last week. And by the way, as believers who are responsible for admonishing the unruly, we also have to be willing to be admonished ourselves. Okay? If we admonish, we have to be willing to admonish, uh, to be admonished ourselves. Again, the scriptures cut both ways. If we admonish, we have to recognize that one day we too will be admonished when we exhibit sinful behaviors and attitudes. And instead of despising the admonishment, instead of being like, how dare you? How dare you come talk to me? How dare you call me out for the sins that are in my life? You don't know me. You don't know my heart. Go away. You have no right to come talk to me. Instead of having those, that attitude, we ought to stop and think. Right? We ought to stop and think and consider, is there even a shred of this admonishment that I'm receiving that's true? Is there even a shred of this that is true where I am wrong, where I am in sin, where I need to repent? And how can I take ownership of that if indeed I am found to have fallen short? We have to be willing to do that. We have to willing, be willing to consider that. If we're not willing to consider it, right, then we find ourselves in danger of isolating ourselves. Right? We find our, ourselves in danger of isolating ourselves from God and from God's counsel and uh, going the way of um, the proud man, uh, going the way of those who are um, who are being led to destruction. Proverbs 18.1 says this, He who separates himself seeks his own desires. He breaks out in dispute against all sound wisdom. A fool does not delight in discernment, but only in revealing his own heart. Don't be the one who despises counsel, who despises admonishment, who decides to separate himself from sound counsel. Don't be a fool. Be grateful for admonishment. I strive to grow in light of that. And to embrace the correction that comes. It's not fun. It never is, right? It's never fun to be corrected. It's never fun to have to make some adjustments. But if our commitment, first and foremost, is to God and to his glory and to the gospel, and we ought to be willing to receive that, that admonishment and that correction so that we can become more godly. 
And if you feel like I am here poking my finger in your chest saying, this is you, this is you, this is you, believe me, this is me too. Right? Just as equally, I'm pointing the finger back at me and I'm saying like, hey, I'm on this too. Right? My wife will tell you I'm pretty messed up. Right? My wife will tell you that I do not always act in the way that I ought to. That my responses are not always the way that please the Lord. Right? Why? Because I'm a sinful person too. Right? So this is not just to you all. This is to me as well. Okay. Now, secondly, we are, to, uh, we are to encourage the faint-hearted. Those who are faint-hearted in, context, in the context of Paul's letters could be those who were discouraged or anxious about the state of their believing loved ones or they're just fearful that they missed out on the Lord's coming uh, or um, that, they, they, that they were the objects of God's wrath. But more, more broadly, the faint-hearted could be those who have doubts, those who are worried, or those who are in danger of giving up on the faith. Right? These are people who need encouragement, to be comforted, to be consoled. Right? Those who come alongside to encourage are not glorified cheerleaders or life coaches, but brothers and sisters who come alongside and help with kind instruction that is meant to build up and remind those who find themselves among the faint-hearted of truth. Right? When we want to encourage someone, you don't just say, don't worry, it'll get better, because right? that's not encouraging to anybody, Right? Or just to say, like, ah, it'll be better in time. It'll be all right. right? That don't help nobody. All right? That doesn't encourage anyone. It's just like, well, thanks. It's not very helpful. Right? Or, or if you even say, like, oh, this too shall pass. It's like, I know that. But that's not helpful right now. Right? To encourage is to come alongside, to speak alongside, to get on eye level with someone and to understand what they're going through, what everything... Um, yeah, to understand what they're going through and, and how everything is affecting them, right? To have some empathy towards them and try to meet them where they're at and to strengthen them, right? When we have athletes on, on the field getting injured, right? And they twist their ankle or they have some other lower body injury that leaves them on the floor writhing in pain. Do the medical trainers go up to them and be like, eh, I've seen that before. You'll be all right. Walk it off. Right? Or rub some dirt in it, you'll be okay. Right? Famous baseball coach uh, speaking, yeah, rub some dirt in it, you'll be fine. Right? Do they say that? Do they do that? Right? No. Right? They come alongside, they see how that person is doing, they address their needs in the moment. Right? Sometimes they help them off the field or the court. Sometimes they have to get a stretcher, right? but they're lifting them up. Right? They're meeting them in their moment of need and they're encouraging, they're, they're, they're trying to help that person in, in their need. Right? So, so that's kind of what it's like to encourage someone, right? To see their need, to imagine life from where they're coming from, right? And to minister to their need in that way so that they can be strengthened, right? The next thing is help the weak. Now, Paul's ambiguous here in terms of who the weak are. Now, and that's led to some people thinking, well, the weak must be those who are physically weak, right? Those who are economically weak. And, you know, that's, that's possible, Right? That's possible. But in the context of 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul is talking about spiritual things, right? spiritual life aspects. So because Paul is not specific here, we know that like, it's likely going to be something spiritual, but you know, the, a clear distinction as to what those spiritual weaknesses are is just that we can't be that, that clear. It could be that they're weak in the faith, or it could be that they're not strong in their ability to resist temptation. No matter what it would be, though, those of us who know people who could use support in their spiritual lives 
should be willing to come alongside to support. It reminds us that our first disposition towards people who need help is to see how we can help them. Okay, fourth, we are to be patient with everyone. As we interact with people in the church, the ministries of admonishing, encouragement, and help can be summed up in the idea of being patient with everyone. When the majority of us think about being patient, we simply think about uh, not rushing to go do things or uh, maybe even just waiting on other people. Now, that is a part of the idea of being patient, but the nuance here uh, of of this verb is to be long-suffering, to suffer along with someone. This is the picture of someone who is even-tempered, someone who is slow to anger, someone who is willing to minister to others and love them, even if their counsel is not heeded. And when you think about the ways in which we care for each other, Right, these ministries of admonishment, of encouraging and helping. Right, it can be frustrating to help people, right? It can be frustrating to teach them. It can be frustrating to be patient with them. Right? If, you're, if you're trying to minister to someone who is wrestling with sinful anxiety and they're spiraling, and they can't seem to grab a hold of who God is, and they continue to allow for their anxieties to cause them to have increasingly irrational fears, it can be really hard to be patient with them, especially when the situations become more ridiculous. Right? It can be frustrating. You know, someone close to me said this, wouldn't life be so much easier if we were all just godly? I think about that. Wouldn't life be so much easier if we were all just godly? And it's true, right? Our lives would be so much easier if we were all godly, if we just listened to God's word and obeyed it the first time. That's always the case. But the fact of the matter is we're all sinful. We will not respond to our circumstances the way that God wants us to all the time. That's just a part of life. Right? And if you believe that, that being a ministry leader, right, being an elder, will make it easier for people to listen to your counsel just because you bear the title elder or pastor? Let me tell you, let me assure you, that is definitely not the case. People choose not to heed my counsel or instruction all the time. But that's no reason for me to be mad at them. That's no reason for me to be impatient with them either. One, because I know how sinful I am and how much God has been patient with me. So I have no right to be mad about mad at other people for, for not listening to me. But two, it's also because I know that I'm just a man. I'm not owed anybody's obedience or submission. It's not up to me to enforce it. In one of, our, uh, one of my church's leadership meetings in seminary, our pastor highlighted for us some wise counsel from another pastor from long ago. And though this pastor lived long, long ago, the counsel was timeless. Um, there's, there's a list of it. I have a list of it in my office. But one of the, one of the, the things that kind of came to mind, one of, the, one of the counsels that came to mind was this. Avoid complaining when your advice or opinion is not consulted. Or having been consulted, set aside. Right, avoid complaining when your advice or opinion is not consulted. Or having been consulted, set aside. There are times when people will not care to check in with us before making decisions. There are times when people 
will check in with us before making decisions. They'll hear our counsel. And after hearing our counsel, they'll choose to go with someone else's counsel. Right? Happens all the time. Parents, am I right? Doesn't it happen all the time? Or your kid comes to you for counsel and they decide to go with the cool aunt's answer because they like the cool aunt better. Right? Or you know, maybe their brother or their sister or their teacher. And there are all sorts of times where people will not listen to our counsel. They will not heed our counsel. That's okay. It's okay. Our response should not be to complain to other people and be like, man, I spent all my time investing in this person and they're not listening to me. Our response also should not be, look, I am your spiritual elder. I am your elder. And because I'm your elder, because I'm your pastor, you need to submit to me. That is wrong. Okay? If any of our elders pull that card and it is not warranted, run far away. Okay? We are not to give those kind of demands. We are not to treat you in that way. We are to strive to love those who do not heed our counsel as Christ loved us and was patient with us. Knowing that we all have the tendency to be stubborn sometimes. If God can be patient with us, we can be patient with others, yes? Right? How much more should we show patience to others when we've been shown much patience? Verse 15. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Okay, we are to seek good for one another. We kind of have to move a little bit here. Um, but... You know, when, when we're sinned against, right, the tendency for us is to sin in kind. Right? To meet the annoyance, to meet the violation, and retaliate according to that violation. Right? That's just human nature. Desiring revenge is just human nature. Now, Paul reminds us in Romans 12 that vengeance is the Lord's. Why is vengeance the Lord's? Because he's the only one who's just enough to do it. Because every single time you and I desire revenge, it's always equal to what came to us plus some. Right? Why? Because we want them to feel it. Right? We want the other person to know. This is why you don't mess with me. Right? You don't think about coming to mess with me, coming to mess with me. You will not do that again. Because you know I'll come at you. I'm gonna come at you harder. That's natural human instinct, right? You're going to feel it. You're going to feel it. And you'll never do that again. That's not what God does. God is completely just. He executes perfect justice. You and I will go too far. He will pay back right according to the measure that is owed. God deals with people perfectly and justly, which is why we leave it up to him. And that being said, instead of seeking to repay evil for evil, we ought to have that mindset of seeking after other people's good. Here's the part that hurts. What does it say here? But always seek after that which is good for one another. Does that sting a little? If it doesn't, it should. We don't do this. Right? Always seeking after the good of other people, 
That should hurt. Because we realize that we all fall short here. And there's none of us who is perfect here. Because of our inclination, because of our tendency to repay evil for evil, none of us does this well. As Christians who await the return of Christ, we are not to act in such a way that makes it seem as if this gospel doesn't matter, that it doesn't have an impact. We are not to live in such a way where we are the sole arbiters of what is right and what is wrong. We are to always seek the good of all people. Notice it says, not just for one another, but for all people, right? So within the church and outside the church. Why? Because the gospel is at stake. Because people need to see that the good news that we preach, that Christ died on the cross for sinners and rose again on the third day, is not a truth that we found in the world that simply works for us and helps us cope. It's not a pick and choose, mix and match kind of deal. It's not a whatever floats your boat kind of truth. It's not a your truth works for you, but my truth works for me kind of deal. This is the objective truth of the word of God that has power to redefine community and to change lives because it alone deals with the problem of sin and it's the, it alone helps us become righteous, not just on our behavior level, but from the heart. And as we submit ourselves to the word of God, as we see all the sin that is in our heart, and as we dig deep and we pull, and, and as we begin to pull out all the gunk that is inside, right, we begin to see how sinful we are, but how good God is. Right, if you've ever snaked a drain, you know it's disgusting. Right, it smells, it's got all sorts of icky gunk in there. It's just gross. How many of us have snaked out our own hearts? And examined ourselves for the sins that lie deep within. We often don't. And because we don't, we end up living in such a way with God's people where we are not at peace with each other. We don't live as if we believe the gospel is true. It's just one of those extra things that we kind of slap onto our lives that sometimes makes life better, but like for the most part, it's, like, it's just there. Right? Do you believe that this is God's word? Do you believe that it has power? Because if you do, right, if you do, we ought to live like it too. And striving to be at peace with everyone in the church is a small part of how we actually demonstrate that this word that we receive and that we believe actually does make a difference. Well, I know that with all of our Thanksgiving celebrations in the rearview mirror, it might be hard for us to think about things in relationship to food. But this morning, we've examined two essential ingredients that encourages peace within the church family. These ingredients are honor elders and patience with all. These two ingredients are crucial in the family of God because we are all prone to sin against each other. Just like our families, just like with our families during this holiday season, or really all year round, but especially during the holiday season, we tend to sin against the ones that we love because we're comfortable with them. We tend to sin against them because we want to be understood and we want for our desires to be met. Now, our desires might not necessarily be wrong, but the way that we pursue them might not be pleasing to the Lord either. 
And so as an entire church family, whether we are the elders or the members of the church, our responsibility to one another and to God is to live in peace with each other and to always, okay, always seek each other's good. That is a tall task that God calls us to, but we can, by his help, by his grace, do what he calls us to do. Before we dismiss, here are some discussion questions for us to consider, either on our own or with others. Uh, Number one, how can we cultivate living in peace with people at church, whether they be the elders, ministry leaders, or other people? So I'm expanding the application out just a little bit so it's not just focused on the elders. And number two, what are some practical ways we might seek to do good to those within the church body and those in the community? And for the second question, I know that the the default answer would be, well, we ought to, you know, go meet needs and, and go give money and all that kind of stuff. Let's take the easy ones off the table and let's think about more practical ways that we can actually think about meeting these needs. All right, let's pray. Father, we're grateful for today for allowing for us to uh, worship you uh, together as a family. We pray that you would be honored as we uh, seek to um, Uh, seek to live out the truths that we've just heard, to live in peace with each other, and to always seek out good for one another. We're grateful, Lord, that you show us much grace because we know we're sinful, and we fall short of this all the time. So we pray, Lord, for your help, for your strength. It's your sons, and we pray. Amen.